So uh, this morning I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, there are a number of different ways in which you can approach uh, Scripture. Um, there's, uh, you maybe just turn me down just a touch, Kasha. Um, uh, you, you can approach the Bible in a number of different ways. Probably the normal and most natural way for us to do that is when you get to a Bible passage, you, you understand the context that it's in, what part of the story that Jesus is telling or that God's telling through the, the big picture of, of the Bible is where does this fit and how does that add to, um, to our understanding of what God is doing. So that's, that's probably the most normal and most natural way for us to read the Bible. What that does is it gives us a really good insight into the biblical narrative. So we call this biblical theology. Now, what I'm going to do today is do something a little bit different, and we're going to look at uh, a systematic theology. Now, what this does is it takes the whole Bible and try and understand a concept from Scripture uh, as to all the bits of the Bible that talks about this particular thing. Um, what do that, when we look at all of those things together, what does God's Word actually tell us about that? And today, we're going to be answering the question, uh, how can God send good people to hell? And that's really the question we're going to look at a little bit systematically. And so that's the reason we don't have someone right now reading the Bible, because we're doing a systematic theology. We're not looking at one particular passage, we're looking at kind of all of what Scripture says about God's judgment of people. Now, this is a, uh, a tricky and difficult topic. It's not a popular one. Uh, we don't like to think of God as, as, a, um, you know, as a God who judges uh, wickedness, who actually sends people to eternal hell. And, and the world largely rejects the concept of hell. Uh, and so because there is this question about how can God be good if He sends people to hell, uh, that people often reject Christianity simply because we can't reconcile that with the idea of a God who is loving. Now, we used to have, as a society, a broadly Christian worldview. So, not everyone necessarily um, believed in God, but at least in the Christian uh, West, there was a, a kind of agreement about the morality that the Bible gave and that that was a good one. But even this framework for how society works, um, even for those who didn't believe in Jesus, uh, everyone kind of agreed about that. They, so, for example, even people who didn't love God still had this idea in their mind. So that's why ACDC tells us that they're on a highway to hell, you know, there's no stop sign, no speed limit to slow them down uh, to this place of damnation. Or Billy Joel tells us that he'd rather uh, laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because the sinners are much more fun. Uh, and so there's, the, <clears throat> we used to understand that there's kind of this binary choice type thing going on. You can either um, sin and have fun, or you can follow Jesus, which the world presents as this kind of sad and depressed, cry all the time kind of way of living. And partly it's this that has caused modern philosophers and thinkers to reject um, Christianity. You know, there's this growing, or there has been this growing rejection of, uh, of, of Christianity because the Christian God was seen as cruel or uh, that he, he prevented people from doing what they wanted to do. So Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, rejects Christianity because he says it, it promotes a kind of slave morality, that, um, that there's this idea that God enslaves people to only do the things that He wants them to do. And so he says because of that, he's going to reject God. 
He argues that uh, God's morality stifles human creativity because we have to, to quote the Bible, quench and put to death the passions that rage within us. And so Nietzsche saw this as a bad thing. Later on, more recently, uh, thinkers like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, you know, they present God as this evil overlord who uses the fear and, and threat of ending up in hell as a, as a method of controlling the world. This idea is perhaps best illustrated by these words. Uh, I think that heaven and hell are a cruel hoax. This is a quote. Uh, I think that heaven and hell are a cruel hoax perpetuated on us by the very people who have the most to gain from it. And so what they're saying is that the church continues to preach about hell because it's a good and very convenient way to control people uh, and to, you know, kind of fill the coffers and, and all of those sorts of things. But it's not even just outside the church that the existence of hell is now debated. Some who are apparently within the Christian uh, church fall within the trap. And probably the best example I could find of that is uh, Rob Bell, who um, I now consider to be essentially a heretic, so don't read his stuff. I mean, read it, but use your brain. And he recently wrote a book called Love Wins, where he's, he's talking about what Jesus came to do. And in this he says, a staggering number of people have been taught that a few select Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance of anything better. This is a misguided and toxic and ultimately subversive... Uh, sorry, this is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace and forgiveness and joy that our world so desperately needs to hear. And so even from people that are at least apparently Christian... Uh, there is this concept that maybe hell is not real. And so today I'm, I, I want to tackle this topic with five questions. And if you've got a piece of paper or a worship booklet there, you might want to take notes as we go um, because it will help us to keep track of our thoughts as we go. So I'm going to be upfront with these five questions I'm going to ask. Firstly, does the Bible actually teach that people go to hell? That's question one. If it does, question two, who are the people that the Bible tells us actually go to hell? Thirdly, how then can we be saved from this fate? Fourthly, uh, who was, is actually saved by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? And finally, why doesn't God just save everyone? Okay, uh, so the related question is, how is God just in sending anyone to hell? They're the same question. Why doesn't God just elect or save everyone? So hopefully that gives us a good framework to look at, uh, and hopefully that helps. So let's dig in. Now, in some ways, these first three questions are pretty fundamental. Does the Bible teach that God sends people to hell? If so, who are they, and how can we be saved? These are very fundamental Christian questions to ask. It's this stuff that every Christian needs to know. And so perhaps you've never thought about that before, um, or maybe your pastor is just really bad in your, in your you know, professional faith classes, and so we've never talked about this. But it's very important for us to, to wrestle with this idea, and, or perhaps even to look at them for the first time. And so firstly... This is my first question. Does the Bible actually teach that people go to hell? Now, Scripture gives us an unequivocal yes, actually. Any person who claims to be a Christian but rejects the idea that hell is a real reality 
hasn't read their Bible, or if they have, they've, um, they don't believe that the whole of the Bible is true. In which case, I think you should think again about calling yourself a, a believer. Because several places in Scripture speak about the reality of hell. So firstly, this is, uh, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, this is what will happen at the end times. Then he will also say to those on, on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this is Jesus speaking uh, specifically of those people who have rejected him as their Lord. Eternal fire is not some sort of metaphorical bad place. It's an actual real fire. If you go to Mark chapter 9 verse 34, um, he describes it as an unquenchable fire. The book of Revelation gives us a little bit more detail and he says there, um, uh, and the smoke of their torment go up forever and ever. There is no rest uh, day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. So, so what is this? They're talking here about the people who have rejected Jesus and followed after the idols of this world presented ultimately as worshipping Satan. And so how long does hell last? Well, it says here that this torment goes on forever. As in, people who go to hell don't get out. They suffer not just for some time, like the sort of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, but actually there's an eternity uh, that that is um, at play here. Again, Jesus says a similar thing himself in Matthew 25. He says, and they will go away to the eternal punishment but the righteous onto eternal life. Eternal punishment is not just a short thousand years stint in hell, right? It's an eternal, fiery, tormentuous place where everyone who rejects Jesus as Lord goes. And you get pretty bad company because you get dispended with Satan and his devils. It's not a good place to be. So then who are the people? So if that's, you know, the Bible says hell, yes, very real. So if that's true, the second question then is, who are the people that actually go to hell? So we've established that the Bible says hell is real, so who goes? Well, perhaps a better way of answering this question is to ask, who are the people who don't go to hell, who actually inherit um, eternal life, who go to heaven? Who gets in to spend eternity with God in heaven or back here on earth when Jesus comes again? So who, who gets in? Well, actually, in some ways, that's a really simple question to answer. Everyone who is perfectly righteous can get in. Everyone who is so pure that they can stand in God's presence will spend eternity in God's presence. And in fact, the Bible is, is clear that sin, any sin, in fact, causes us an eternal separation from God uh, that kind of blots us out of the picture. So, for example, this is just one of the passages out of Isaiah 59. Uh, the prophet is writing, it says, your iniquity, so your sin, the things that you do against God, separate you from your God and, you've, uh, and have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen to, ultimately to your prayers is what he's talking about there. The problem is that this sinfulness is an inherited state. We all carry sin, this separation from God, in our DNA, so to speak. More or less in a literal sense, sin is something that we inherit. Our very nature is corrupted by this separation problem we have from God. And so the problem is that though, uh, it, the problem is that all of us is in this position. 
So who gets into heaven? Well, the answer is actually no one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3 tells us. So then the problem that all of humanity shares is the fact that all of us have this sin problem. We've inherited it uh, from our parents and we've perpetuated it through our own wrongdoing. And unless something happens to us, this is a problem that all of us actually share. Unless we are changed, unless something happens to us, this will be our eternal fate. And the fate of every human being on earth. And the bigger problem is that none of us can actually do anything about this problem. In our profession of faith class, we talk about how um, God's standard is, like if you've got sort of a, a line of righteousness, God's standard is here, perfect righteousness, and all of us fall short. But the problem that humanity has is that everything we do, we're like on this hamster wheel that continually spins. And everything we do, instead of walking us towards God, even the good things we do actually walk us away from God because even those things are tainted by our sinful nature. So no matter where we start, we end up wandering further and further from God unless we can somehow get off this sin hamster wheel. We need someone to take us off of that so that this gap can be dealt with. And so if the, the standard that God requires is perfect and everything we do makes it worse, how then can we be saved? If all it takes for a person to, to get into heaven, so to speak, is to be perfectly sinless in order to spend an eternity with a perfect God and none of us is perfect, who then can be saved? How can we be saved from going to hell? That's the third question we need to look at. So how then are we saved? Well, the Bible tells us that it requires two things, faith and repentance. The classic verse on this is um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by, if, uh, you've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourself, it is God's gift. And then in verse 9, so that no one can uh, boast, because it's not from your own work. This is not something that you can do, it needs to be done to you. This is the classic you are saved by faith alone verse. This is a theme that travels right throughout the Bible. And as you look at it, you'll see, uh, as you read the whole Bible, you see what faith actually does to us. The first time we encounter real faith in Scripture is in Genesis uh, with Abram, um, who uh, God picks and God calls him. And then in Genesis 15 verse 6, we read that Abram believed the Lord, so he had faith. And because he believed... It was credited to him as righteousness. So this perfect righteousness that God requires is given to Abram on the basis of him having faith. Now that's interesting, right? Because look at what the faith of Abram does. He believes and God credits it to him as righteousness. We get this perfect life actually through faith. Faith is an instrument that takes you off the hamster wheel, joins you into the perfect life of Jesus and transfers you from a state of eternal badness to eternal perfectness in God's presence. That's what faith does. The rest of Scripture makes it clear that we, and in fact we can spend weeks just looking at this one 
uh, concept. But the, the short version is that faith is the instrument that God uses to make you righteous. But it, the crucial point is that it is a gift that God gives you. It is a gift that comes from Him and, and uh, that He gives us to enable us to trust in Jesus and for Jesus to stand in our place. And what happens then is that we are taken off this hamster wheel and we are given the perfect life of Christ. It's like a piece of armour that you put on. He takes our bad sinful lives on himself and he's punished on the cross. He dies in our place and he gives us his perfect life in exchange. It's the best deal you can ever make. And that's why those that have faith, that believe in Christ Jesus, get to live with God in heaven. Not because they have done this perfect life thing. They don't have their own righteousness, but they have the righteousness given to them uh, in Christ Jesus. They have been given a perfect life through faith. Which is why Ephesians tells us that it is a gift, not by works, but it is a gift from God. So those are the three basic questions. Is hell real? Yes. Who goes to hell? Everyone who doesn't have a perfect life. And how then can you be saved? Well, you need to have a perfect life, which you get given by faith in Jesus. So then naturally the question is, who gets to believe? If it's a gift from God, how does he make the choice of who he, uh, who he uh, gives the gift to? Who then is saved by faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I think this is where things get a little bit interesting. Who gets to have Jesus' perfect life? Is it everyone? Or is it only some people? Is it no one? Well, I think there are really actually only two options. Uh, And these are called the doctrine of unlimited atonement or the doctrine of limited atonement. And we need to think about which one the Bible actually presents. So the the option one is unlimited atonement. That is, everyone is saved by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Now that seems to us to be God's most loving option, doesn't it? I mean, he can just ignore everyone's sin and elect or choose to give faith to everyone. Or he can just forgive their sin whether they believe in him or not whether they actually have a living faith or not. We think that that is the most loving option. And in some ways, it's the easier of the two options because it makes God seem all the more loving uh, because he's just letting everybody in to his presence. And if you look at a number of verses in the Bible that talk about Jesus' work, we might be tempted to go this way, actually. We might be tempted to look at this. And there are a number of verses that can lead us that way. Uh, For example... John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So, everyone. Or, the classic verse, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Or, John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread, this is Jesus speaking, that came down from heaven... If anyone eats of this bread of my flesh, he will live forever. Because the bread that I give, uh, sorry, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Or 
2 Corinthians 5.19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Um, or, finally, 1 Corinthians 15. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ also all will be made alive. And there are a couple more of similar ilk, and we don't have to go into every one. But there seems to be, at least at naive reading, this idea that Jesus came to reconcile the world to him. So did Jesus actually do that? Did he die for all? And this is where we have to use our brains, because in each and every one of these cases, the audience to whom these verses are written um, are actually a Christian group. And so like the church in Corinth, uh, he's writing to, to the church, or the church in Rome or whatever, the writer talks about how Jesus saves us all, meaning all of us believers together. Or it speaks about how Christ reconciles the world to himself, so he's talking about the scope of what Jesus does, not just for the Israelites, but for every tribe, every nation in the world. And we have to take the rest of the Bible into account. And when we do, we see that there's actually no way we can believe that Jesus died for everyone. For example, Romans 8.28, For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. Um, and then verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. There are some that are predestined and some that are not. We have to deal with that. Or again, in Ephesians chapter 1, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. Or actually, even when the angel speaks to Mary, he says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the, nation, uh, the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we can go on and on. I think the most obvious one is Revelation 20. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There are some who are in and some who are out. The point, I think, is made that Jesus died for those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, whose names he wrote in the book of life. And so not everyone gets in. It's those that God has predestined, elected, chosen. So is hell real? Yes. Who goes to hell? Everyone who doesn't have a perfect life. Who can be saved from going to hell? Well, how can you be saved? By having a perfect life. You can't get that, so you need Jesus' perfect life. Who's saved by Jesus' sacrifice? The elect, those whom God has chosen. That's the foundation. <laughs> so let's look then at the, at the final question. Why then doesn't God save, elect, choose everyone? Isn't it most loving for God to forgive everyone's sin? When you think about that question, you come at that question with, I think, three assumptions. Assumption one is that it would be better for God to elect everyone than to elect only some. Did you see the assumption, the problem with that? If we say it would have been better for God to choose everyone, we are sitting in judgment over God's actions, aren't we? 
We're saying, God, I know better than you. It would have been better for you to do what I think you should have done. But friends, we are so small. Our minds are so limited. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us don't even know what's good for ourselves most of the time. So how can we assume that we would know what is better for God to have done? God who controls the scope of the universe. So I think assumption one is very faulty. It doesn't work. Assumption two is that it would have been better for God to display his character of love rather than his other characteristics. So universal atonement, that idea that God saves everyone, is said to highlight the great love of God. But it overlooks all the other aspects of God's character, doesn't it? It overlooks his hatred for sin. It overlooks his justice. It actually overlooks his mercy. When we say that it is better for God to show his character of love, it is more loving and therefore more glorifying to God, when we say this, we're only thinking of one side of the story. The argument is that for, if God was to forgive sin, he should do that for everyone because it's the most loving, most compassionate, most gracious thing to do. And perhaps that's even true. But that's not how we even live our own lives. Because what about justice? Consider the case where someone steals all your stuff. The thief gets caught and now you stand in front of the judge with the thief. Is it loving for the judge to say, oh well it doesn't really matter, he just forgives the thief and lets him go. The thief might consider it loving but you wouldn't. Where's the justice? Where's the righteousness? Where's, is the judge just in that circumstance? Perhaps the most loving thing the righteous judge could do to, is to make the thief pay back the money and then to get that person into some sort of uh, rehabilitation program or prison, right? The same is true of God. Sin is offending against God. And when we sin, we incur a debt against God. And so for God to be loving, he cannot just wipe out that debt and forgive it. The debt has to be paid for. For things to come good and right again, the debt has to be paid. And so to emphasize God's love at the expense of his justice is just wrong. Our society doesn't work that way and God doesn't work that way either. So the assumption that it is better for God to show his love ignores the other aspects of God like his justice and his mercy. So assumption number two fails as well. And that then brings us to the third assumption... And the third assumption is that we are the purpose of creation. Now what do I mean by that? We ultimately think, I think, deep down that creation revolves around us. Since humans are the pinnacle of God's creation, we must have been the point, right? That's what we think. Therefore God should save all of us because we are so special. but we are not why the world was made. The universe was created to glorify God. That was his purpose with creation. 
It exists for God to be glorified, for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit to be glorified. And how can God be glorified best? Well, the answer the Bible gives is that God is glorified best by creating a world in which humans have the free will to choose to reject Him. That makes intuitive sense to us. If all we could ever do was to choose God, there would be no glory in that, right? We would be robots. But if humans are to reject God, and God is good, and God is perfect, then of course that should be an evil act. And so for God to be glorified in His perfect righteousness, He has to punish evil perfectly, which is why hell exists. But then for God to be glorified in His perfect mercy, then He should save some people from their eternal judgment. But for God to do that, He must remain perfectly just. He can't just forgive their sins, He has to, that's not fair. He has to punish the sin, the sin has to be paid for. So He has to both punish and simultaneously forgive. How does that work? Well, the punishment He will take on Himself. And so for God to be glorified in His perfect fairness, He chooses to take the punishment on Himself on the cross. And in this, God shows His perfect love and is glorified most in His perfect love for sacrificing His life even for His enemies, those who have rejected Him. And for God to be glorified in His perfect wisdom, He chooses those who's, who through their election will bring Him the most glory. In electing the worst of sinners, God shows the extremeness of His mercy. In not choosing a good person, the least of sinners, God is glorified in showing His absolute justice and mercy, uh, and purity. In electing those who are only slightly sinful, God is glorified in showing the depth of human depravity and the extreme badness of sin. And in electing the wicked, the worst of us, God is glorified in showing the love He has even for His enemies. And in choosing some people that doesn't make sense to us, God is glorified in showing His wisdom with the world as He sovereignly rules it. And so is hell real? Yes. Who goes to hell? Everyone who doesn't have a perfect life, which is all of us. So how do we, can we be saved from going to hell? Well, we need to be given a perfect life in our place. And so those who believe have Jesus. Who then is saved by Jesus' uh, sacrifice? Those whom God has chosen, the elect, whom he chooses to give faith. And why doesn't he elect everyone? Why does God not just choose everyone? Because one, choosing everyone is not necessarily better. We cannot sit over God in judgment. Because two, God is most glorified when he shows both his perfect mercy and love and his perfect righteousness and justice. And three, because electing everyone does not serve God's purpose. His perfect plan in creating the world, which was for God the Father to glorify God the Son, and for God the Son to glorify God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And hopefully, that makes sense. So how do we respond to that? I think the right response for us, because it's tricky to deal with, is that we need to exercise our faith. 
It is to humbly put ourselves under God's divine wisdom and to say, I am choosing to believe that it is better for you, even though I, for you, God, even though I cannot understand it myself fully. And that is the beginning of wisdom, friends. Let's pray. Lord, we recognise that this is a difficult and tricky subject. And in many ways it seems um, so countercultural and almost wrong to say that you would send good people to hell. And yet when we see your word and we see life clearly, we recognise that there are actually no good people. That none of us can stand up and say, yes, I have lived a perfect life. And so, Lord, we mourn over our own sin, our own wrongdoing. We mourn over those that are close to us who do not trust in Jesus for their salvation. And we pray, Father, would you have mercy as we hold in tension the perfect love you have in uh, laying down your life even for your enemies, but at the same time the perfect justice which is part of your character. So you, we pray, Lord, that you might elect those or might have already elected those who are close to us so that they too may come to deeply know and trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.